this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. Today, our story begins with a story told by Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And she tells the story of a man named Javarius Cotton. Javarius is an American citizen. And if you somehow recalibrated your brain to avoid the white supremacist socialization that would cause you to automatically assume Javarius is black, then let me tell you that, yes, he is indeed black. Javarius is fifth in line in a generation of black men in his family that could not vote. Great-great-grandfather Cotton could not vote because he was a slave. Great-grandfather Cotton could not vote because he was beat to death by the Ku Klux Klan for attempting to vote. Grandfather Cotton was prevented from voting by Klan intimidation. And Father Cotton was barred from voting by Jim Crow poll taxes and literacy tests. Now today, Javarius Cotton cannot vote because he, like many black men in the United States, has been labeled a felon and is currently on parole. Now Cotton's story, according to Michelle Alexander, in many ways illustrates, of course, the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The valiant efforts to abolish slavery in Jim Crow and to achieve greater racial equality have brought about significant changes in the legal framework of American society, but it brought new rules to the game, so to speak. These new rules have been justified by new rhetoric that brings forth the same results. And this dynamic, which legal scholar Reaver Siegel has dubbed preservation through transformation, is a process through which white privilege is maintained, though the rules and rhetoric change. There are those that argue that we are in a colorblind society. The idea that race is no longer a factor in social relations. You will hear that all through up and down <laughs> the critical race, <laughs> the critical race studies discussions. Their support for efforts such as the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act made it no longer socially acceptable to use race as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So societies stopped using race. That's what they did. And rather than relying on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices we supposedly left behind. And once you're labeled a felon, all the old forms of discrimination ensues. Employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of educational opportunity, denial of food stamps and other public benefits, and exclusion from jury service, all are suddenly out of your reach as a citizen. As a criminal today, Michelle Alexander argues, you scarcely have more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama 
at the height of Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander sums up in her introduction with this very powerful quote, We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. You're listening to Undisciplined. episode, we discuss African and African-American studies and social work through the lens of intergenerational racial trauma. And I'm joined today by Dr. Valandra, professor of social work at the University of Arkansas. As a joint faculty member of African and African-American studies and social work, Dr. Valandra has served as the director of the program for three years before handing it over to me. Thank you so very much, Dr. Valandra. And she's earned a number of degrees in business administration. She had an MBA from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. She is also a child welfare scholar. She earned at the University of Minnesota, where she completed her MSW and PhD in social work with a focus on child abuse, gender-based intimate partner violence, and sex trafficking of women and children of African-American heritage. Her scholarship focuses on community engagement and the life experiences of African-American families with intergenerational resilience, risk, trauma related to sex trafficking, interpersonal violence, and intersectional racism. She teaches many courses, not just in research methods and advanced practices in social work relating to African-American families, experiencing incarceration, like the story of Javaris Cotton that we just mentioned. Dr. Valandra's research agenda emphasizes the strengths and protective factors developed within intergenerational parenting and family networks that mitigate risk and promote resilience and recovery. And her research and practice standpoints include critical race, black feminists, multi-systems life course, intersectional, Afrocentric social justice frameworks. I would say that is pretty undisciplined. (laughs) Undisciplined be thy name. In her spare time... I know Dr. Valandra to be an artist and one, you know, who likes to ride her motorcycle on the highway. How are you such a badass? Like, (sighs) you live in the life I want. She loves poker. She's a golfer. And best of all, she's a lover of black people. (laughs) So I'd love to welcome Dr. Valandra to Undiscipline. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Banton. Wow, what an introduction. (laughs) Okay. We generally like to start by, you know, thinking about a little background. So I want for our listeners to tell us about, you know, growing up. Tell us about how did you get to this place? How did you grow up and how did you get your academic journey and how you got to, of course, African African American studies. Sure. Well, my path to black studies or African and African American studies is somewhat circuitous. So in that, I started college with an interest in becoming a physical education teacher, having excelled in high school sports. But however, after my first year in college, my advisor told me that the market for teachers was saturated and advised me to think about changing my major to computer science, engineering, business, or management information systems. <laughs> so I chose business. 
But while I was in school, in the school of business, I took every black studies course I could because in elementary school, junior high school, and in high school, the only thing I ever learned about black people through formal education was that we come from savages in Africa, we were enslaved to save our souls, and we were freed from slavery by Abraham Lincoln. Oh, oh, that's the narrative right there. There that's it is. That's the narrative. And you know what? That's how I think a lot of students usually come to study these kinds of courses. It's like your parents send you to college to make money. Mm-hmm. And then you, you find your passion that something connects in your soul, mm-hmm. that connects with you and your identity that validates you in some kind of way. And then you're like, well, I have to make this money to help the family, but I also love this. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that kind of whitewash systematic curriculum violence just left me wanting, mm-hmm. and I needed to know more, more about my history, about my people, and that's what got me involved and interested in African and African-American studies. Oh, wow. That, that's such a powerful story. It's one that stands in for, as I said, many, many students. But if we could back up a little bit just to, um, you grew up in um, Nebraska? I grew up in Nebraska and El Paso, Texas, and Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and Frankfurt, Germany. My stepfather was in the Army, so we traveled every three years. And I attended schools uh, across the country and then uh, finished high school in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, my last two years oh, wow. of, of high school. And so. how did all that kind of movement, Do you th- how do you think that informed how you thought about the world, the complexities of the world, and your identity and everything. Well, it did influence me in the sense of thinking in terms of a a really kind of like a a multicultural, multiracial society. But I also spent, no matter where we lived, I spent my summers in Nebraska in a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, an almost exclusively black neighborhood with my grandparents. And so I got a chance to see a lot of the disparities, you know, firsthand, based on where we lived during the academic year and then living in a poor black neighborhood, you know, during the summers, um, I got a chance to really, it really opened my eyes to the, the, the racial, particularly the racial and class disparities in this country at a very, very early age. I remember the first time I came to the U.S. and like I, I recognized that the train tracks divided mm-hmm. um, neighborhoods racially. Mm-hmm. Does the president know this? <laughs> I was so surprised. Like, how is the geographical landscape divided and over there looks good and over there looks bad? Yeah. I was a computer science major at the time. I didn't oh. know nothing. <laughs> and they do the same thing with highways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure all of those background experiences folded into all these decisions that you're making. So what was the moment that led you to bring in ASD into, you eventually went into social work. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because um, your heart just couldn't take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, because no matter how you try to escape it, girl, like, it's like, oh, it's calling me. I cannot escape. And so um, you, you make your way to social work having gotten your bachelor's in business. Yes. You decide. Were your parents upset with you? Yes. <laughs> My parents, my grandparents, my whole community, they thought, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you know, it was really like 
being in left field. That's what they kept on saying, you know. What did they what? think of social work? Because yeah. they thought it history was, what? Definitely a lot of moneymaker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now, my, my grandparents were okay from the standpoint of uh, thinking of social work in terms of service. Because I grew up, with, that was one of the values that we grew up with, giving right. back and yes. service. But coming from business and making money, I mean, I was considered the epitome of success. Right. And then I was, you were going to be the bank for the family. Yes. And I, <laughs> and I was throwing it all away. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly understand that. Right? Like you have that pressure, like, you know, my whole family is dependent on me. There might be like a little business. They're expecting me to bring this business acumen to help it run. Exactly. You know, take all that college learning. Right. And now I want to be a historian. I want to be a social worker. Oh, my God. What do you all make? Like $40,000 a year? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> You find social work. Mm -hmm. How is the kind of social work that you walk into, right? And how do you bring African and African-American studies into social work? Well, it was examining the experiences of African-Americans with domestic violence and sexual assault and sex trafficking that brought uh, African and African-American studies and social work research together for me. So in examining the links between the history of enslavement and racial oppression and the risks involved when black people access white dominant social services and health care delivery systems, and, and we find that the construct of a victim is primarily this white damsel in distress and the construct of, of black people are hypersexual criminals with high thresholds for pain, it made me realize the need to focus my research using a more interdisciplinary lens to understand and explore the interventions that are culturally grounded and that challenge these racist structural barriers and constructions of black people that really get in the way of helping survive black survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, um, and sex trafficking. And so I really had to think about it from the standpoint of looking at individuals, but also intergenerational issues that black people face within their families and their communities and networks when they reach out for support and for services. So you said in terms of social work, the structure and framing of social work, the services, how they are delivered, it's kind of curated for this victim that they have in mind yes. who is white. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you can see it in, in uh, child abuse, uh, regardless of what form of victimization you're looking at. Like, for example, when you when look at child sexual abuse, child abuse, uh, and the images that you see, more often than not, they are little white kids. Uh, when you see the Amber Alerts, um, you know, if they're photographs. And the same thing when we look at uh, sexual assault survivors uh, and images in terms of imagery. And I believe that in many ways we can trace this right back to slavery. Uh, the framing of white women as damsels in distress. Also the framing of black women as wenches, as promiscuous, uh, so it makes it very difficult to see a victim there in your psyche. And those were some of the things that in my research I was running into in terms of how services are delivered, whether they're in social work, uh, whether they're human, human services or healthcare services. Many times the framing of, the visual framing of victim 
uh, is white and female, whether that's a child, whether it's a teenager, whether it's a, an adult. Uh, and then the framing of perpetrators are that's when you see the, see the stereotypes of black people, you know, hypersexual. Black people enter that narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the other problem with that is that African-American women, but also African-American men, are oftentimes not seen as victims. African-American boys are victims of sexual assault, uh, domestic violence. African-American men are victims of rape and sexual assault as well. But they are more often framed as uh, perpetrators only. Should say perpetrators only. So many of the cases that we hear about, the stereotypical Jim Crow lynching cases where African Americans are the perpetrator, were supposedly, allegedly the perpetrators of these rapes, right, that yes. led to their lynching. Yes. It's white women who are taking up this narrative, right, mm-hmm. of the good white woman wife. Yes. Who is then pounced upon by this deviant African-American man. Exactly. Right? And, and they know that society will, will buy into it because like, it's standard. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? it's very standard. And so you have outlined how this uh, blocks or creates an unequal distribution of service because if the system is structurally blind to who the victims are, then the services don't get delivered. So this is novel to social work and for a field, I'm not quite sure what the diversity is in the field. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that diverse. Not that diverse. Uh, So um, how is this work then responded to within the institution and the field of social work? One of the things that I can say uh, is that for me, and because this is an area of interest for me, I am thankful that there are some black scholars who have um, really push the field of social work to think in terms of Afrocentric approaches to practice, also looking at a common heritage, African diaspora heritage. There are specific scholars within the field of social work, like, uh, for example, um, Dr. Jerome Chile, who proposed an Afrocentric paradigm and a shift in, to shift human service and social policy analysis. And then the Common Heritage Framework is a philosophy and practice of framework that was offered by doctors Edith Freeman and Sadie Logan as a counter-narrative to the traditional pathological construction of black people and a challenge to the argument of the lack of continuity and common heritage among peoples of African and African descent. So there, because there are some arguments that, you know, with enslavement, that black people of the diaspora lost all of their cultural connections to Africa. And and these are social workers. Mm -hmm. These are black social workers who brought forth these frameworks and these paradigms. And in the area of domestic violence, uh, particularly, I I draw upon the work of Dr. Tricia Bent-Goodley, and, and understanding trauma and interpersonal violence in black families through a community-based lens, through a faith-based lens, and clearly the work of feminists, uh, black feminists like Patricia Hill Collins. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why I draw up on their scholarship. Cheryl Waits uh, is also an, uh, uh, Dr. Cheryl Waits is a scholar uh, at she was at the University of Michigan who looked at extended family, uh, and intergenerational family dynamics, and she right. and she paired Afrocentric and intergenerational fa- to to help 
uh, the the field of, of social work understand that, for example, that with black families, something just like caregiving right. is not just done by, you know, the, the parent. The mom and dad. Yeah, the mom and dad. You know, so I stand on the shoulder of these giants, and uh, I I utilize their their frameworks, their paradigms to help me in pushing the envelope to help people think about when we're looking at domestic violence and sexual assault and how it impacts the lives of Black people. That we really need to be looking through a broader lens than this Eurocentric, whitewashed, white yes. picket fence. Yes, white picket fence framework. Yes, <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then also one of my my mentors, uh, Dr. Priscilla uh, Gibson, she's done extensive work in looking at African American grandmothers as caregivers, and has really shaped the field of child welfare with with her scholarship. These are the prominent giants that I um, I embrace. As I, as I move forward with my work. What kinds of challenges does social work come with as a field? I think when we're looking at theoretical and practice paradigms and frameworks that shape how we practice, there are going to always be challenges and limitations. None are perfect um, under all circumstances across all populations and issues. But when it comes to looking at Afrocentric frameworks, the ones that I've identified, I think the additional challenge in the field of social work is that the field of social work is built upon and saturated with Eurocentric paradigms and frameworks and models that are claimed as universal and applicable to everyone under all circumstances. And this kind of arrogant mythology and and white-dominant approach to education and practice is what makes it very difficult for someone to embrace a different worldview, a different ideological stance, or a different Kind of inertia. Yes, (laughs) yes, to service delivery, policy design. I think that that's the biggest challenge. Uh, Yeah, I can certainly identify because over time, it's like you reach a consensus. Mm -hmm. People build on that. The historiography builds on each other. It's reinforced. It's reinforced. It's perpetuated. Yeah, from our, you know... From my own discipline of history, we think about the Dunning School mm-hmm. of history, the Lost Cause story, and how he had trained all of these historians. And now you have like Hillary Clinton repeating that story, because right? it's become consensus now. It's become consensus history. And I imagine, as you were saying, it has, it has settled yes. down into history. And so to challenge it... Mm-hmm. Again, this is why we see so much hysteria around critical race theory. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. Because you have excluded these voices for so very long. And so now that they are emerging, it's like, you are trying to rewrite history. (laughs) Why are you trying to do that? Now, let's switch gear for a minute here. Can you tell us how does the Black community talk about experiences of tragic racial violence? The Black community certainly has more encounter with tragic racial violence. How does the community talk about tragic racial violence? Well, that, that's kind of a broad question for me. And I, so what I would say is that I believe there are multiple and intersecting ways in which black communities talk about and cope with experiences of racial trauma. And there are major ones that we draw on, like a spiritual practice, looking to a higher power for strength, guidance, patience. Uh, and then instilling that those spiritual practices in future generations as well. Some aspects of racial violence have been dealt with through silence. Uh, silence sometimes can be a place of power for people, 
Sometimes it's a place of victimization and, and continued victimization. And again, that also depends on what are the circumstances. Um, and so it's not uncommon to hear, particularly, for example, black elders say things like, we don't talk about that. I remember people telling story about Tulsa and the elders did not want their children to know about it or talk about it because right. they thought the trauma, bringing that trauma with them with them would hold them back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Stop dredging up the past. Move on. Yep. Yeah. I think that that has been useful uh, in some ways in maintaining, helping people maintain their comportment, and that's needed to continue to hope, strive, and, and, and protect their psyches uh, from the vulnerabilities of ongoing racial trauma, but then it also can become a barrier. There are times when it becomes a barrier. Um, and and we can t- we'll talk about that uh, too a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are also members of the black communities who use social activism, protests, marches, you know, to talk about and address uh, racial violence. And one of the things, like when you were mentioning the um, the elders, one of the things that I've noticed is that the closer they are to those experiences of racial trauma, the harder it is sometimes talk to about talk it. about it. Yeah, yeah, to talk about it. Because they've lived through it, and it brings back. It, it's like a trigger. Because that that lives, that conditions your nervous system. Mm-hmm. It lives in your body. It lives in your cells, mm-hmm. yes. And it can be generally transmitted to the next uh, mm-hmm. generation. Absolutely. Uh, and so there are times when the, these kinds of ways of coping are very protective. But then over time, they can become risk factors. And that is where the, the challenge becomes when something that is you've used as a coping mechanism in the, the moments that you are experiencing that, that, upheaval. That, that upheaval or that trauma, and it's, and it's useful at that time in terms of keeping your comportment, keeping you, uh, you know, safe, uh, as safe as possible or helping you survive. Yeah. But then later on, Using those same kinds of skills and, and coping mechanisms, yes, it can be detrimental. I, I imagine, you know, um, attachment theory, right? Mm-hmm. You grow up and you learn uh, how you relate to your caregivers and you suppress certain memories, perhaps as a way of coping with criticism. And you take that kind of toxic relation to your other relationship, but that was not the proper way to relate. Right. And then it explodes because it's of no more use to you in your adult right. um, age. And, the, and particularly when there's no intervention, when there's nothing intervening, and, that, and that's what makes it, and that's what c- helps it continue. But there are ways in which you can intervene and interrupt and disrupt that process. What are some of the ways that black people, how, for instance, when we talk about um, I, a lot of the things that I see online um, some of the time is, you know, black folks saying that they don't like to watch slave movies. They don't like to lean into that kind of history. So are there ways that black people are trying to cope with this kind of a tragic history? I think that it's, it's very understandable that some black people want to kind of distance themselves from the tragic history of enslavement, Jim Crow, black codes, and other forms of structural, economic, and social, cultural, educational victimization. In fact, who the hell wouldn't want to? <laughs> If they had an opportunity to, to do I otherwise. I want people to read right? it, Dr. V. So here's the deal. <laughs> it's very pervasive. And you have to pace yourself. 
Yeah. That's that's the, the, the issue I think that's really, really important because psychologically, physically, emotionally, people are dealing with a hell of a lot. And they have to keep breathing. They have to keep making a way. They have to keep thriving. They have to keep excelling despite. So one of the ways to deal with it is to avoid it, distance yourself from it, deny it. It's human nature. In fact, it can be protective in helping people to disassociate themselves. Now, there is a cost, (laughs) right? Because when you weigh the costs, you can't continue to, you can't always avoid or distance or dismiss. So, for example, one of the things that we talk about in social work and like in, in looking at issues, let's just say, you know, slave movies, for example. It might be very triggering to go to a theater, you know, a theater full of people and watch some traumatic thing that has happened to your ancestors, right? But if there's a possibility of watching it through streaming in your own home, right. or you go to the movie, but you pick the people that you're going to go Always. to. Yeah. yeah, you go to the movie with a support system in place. All of these kinds of things are, are ways of coping with so that you don't distance yourself from it, but you engage in it in a, in a, in a, in a much healthy more way. healthy and therapeutic and supportive and compassionate way. Like when we went to go see... see Black Panther? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Black Panther. That's the, the whole g- group pulled up, dressed up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I remember when I went to see Beloved when it came out. You remember that? Ooh, yes, I do. Because I went with a couple of friends, and that movie was hard to watch. And I was so glad. And it was just by accident that I had invited a couple of my friends to go with me, but I was glad that it was only them. I, I had nightmares for a long time. I slept with the lights on. Oh, wow. Twelve years a slave. I went to see that with my mom and two other friends on purpose. And right after the movie, we went back to the house and we had a discussion. Right. Yes. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you have to do when you are looking at, you know, tragic movies, because they aren't, even though they, even though they are fictionalized, mm-hmm. they are based in truths. Yeah. And they're based in centuries and centuries and centuries of oppression. And of, they might trigger people. something. And they, yes. And they are triggering. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's just really, really important to... Uh, give people time and space to avoid, uh, to deny, to dismiss, but then also to re-engage. And then there are just ways in which you can re-engage that are supportive. They help create psychological and psychic space so that you can journey into that trauma in a way that can be healing, and be a part of recovery and not re-traumatization. Yeah. Yes. I remember the first time I watched Roots. Mm -hmm. There you go. Oh, That's another one. Mm -hmm. I had to take some time off. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was upset. Yes. (laughs) Right. And that's important. Yeah. Yes. It's important to give yourself time and space to feel what you're going to feel. And what happens sometimes is because these stories about enslavement and uh, like 12 years of slave and all these these kinds of tragic parts of our history, uh, you know, unfortunately, many times there there aren't other outlets 
for discussing them, you know, unless someone takes a class in African and African American studies, uh, you know, or something right. like that. Because, you know, many times we're in families where how they've dealt with it is push it aside. It's, push it aside. You, you know, yeah. when we talk about lynching, there are people who've had lynchings in their, their family members who have been lynched and they do Don't not have it. conversations like that with, you know, the next generation and the next generation. And so um, yeah. it's just really important to engage in that kind of exploration or um, witnessing of the history in ways that are supportive and that don't re-victimize and re-traumatize people. You study intergenerational trauma, which is just so very fascinating to me because, you know, African Americans are known to add a lot of benefits to this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that African American families go about living their lives, that is so unlike the white American paradigm, is so fascinating to me. It's the same thing. Um, having grown up in Jamaica, you know, a family means an extended family. You know, you're talking about your grandma, your uncles, and your aunties. It's not just your immediate to, you know, whoever is in your household, your kids, and yourself. That's that's the family. No, your intergenerational um, relations are very important to you, what you, how you go back and how you go forward. So you studied that kind of intergenerational trauma. Um, can you tell us what is that and what led you to, to such a study? And how did you go about studying it in an undisciplined way and what you have found? Well, I do study intergen intergenerational trauma, but I also study intergenerational resilience. And in a nutshell, it's understanding ways by which individuals and families transmit values, attitudes, beliefs, ethics, coping mechanisms, the, the way they live from one generation to the next generation, and assessing the protective features or assets and the risk features or limitations in what gets transmitted. And I started studying intergenerational trauma and resilience within my own intergenerational family or extended family system. And, and first, just listening to my grandparents talking about their lives living in Arkansas. And they were both born in 1919, one in Mariana, Arkansas, one in Wheatley, Arkansas. And then they migrated to Omaha in 1944 when my mother was four years old. So listening to the ways in which they coped with racism, how they attempted to protect themselves and their children, the things that they told their children and how to survive and thrive despite, you know, races, uh, the spirituality, the work ethic that they passed on to the next, you know, generation. In looking at the ways that they talked about things, there were some stories and some methods that, that they transmitted that I felt were helpful and protective. So I called those, you know, protective, proactive ways of helping their family, uh, the family, the next generation survive and thrive. But there were also some things that they transmitted, for example, remaining silent about interpersonal violence and uh, victim blaming within the family system as a way of coping that I would describe as maladaptive. And so those were those were things that were also transmitted. So, for example, you know, if you see, you know, your father beating your mother or your, you know, uh, brother beating a sister or something, you don't say anything about it. Yeah. You know, you pray to God 
In fact, <laughs> you know, just pray to God and encourage God, you know, and, and pray to God and God and, and that'll help. Well, no, that didn't work so well. So those were some of the things that I was so like. They use well, spirituality to mask some yeah. of the intergenerational uh, maladaptive strategies. Yes, and and that got passed on generation to generation to generation. And I'm telling you that it's it's also one of the things that led me into looking at domestic violence, sexual assault. What you're willing to put up with from a man. That's right. Girl, he'll change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or what, you know, what did you do wrong? Yeah. Right? What did you do wrong <laughs> right. that resulted in, you know, him, him to hit you, hit, hit you again? Mm-hmm. No, that just was not working. So that those are the maladaptive things that can be transmitted as well, you know, generationally. Yeah. Another one that I think that is also very, and this one is tricky because it it is when when you look at the larger system, you know, the the, the larger system of white supremacy and racism, and particularly the way black men are victims. What also gets transmitted and got transmitted in my family is that you have to protect black men at all costs. Don't call the police. That's right. And that means even if it means sacrificing the uh, victim, sacrificing a child, sacrificing the woman, sacrificing a a child who has been physically or sexually abused by a black man, you have to do that because of racism. Because And we get socialized generationally to do that. And it is problematic. Absolutely. It is very, very problematic. Black power is for black men. Yeah, right? that's right. Exactly. <laughs> black yeah. power is for black men. And then you get called a race traitor. You know, you, you know, there's an expectation You're running behind these white feminists, yes. you know, betraying the black man. Yes. Yeah. And, and all of that impacts the, the research that I do when I look mm-hmm. at African-Americans and domestic violence and sexual assault right. that, and that's that intergenerational message that gets, and you you see it happening over and over and over, and and we have to do something about that. We have to find ways of supporting black men, but also holding them accountable. All of this is very fascinating. My um, own introduction and understanding of that concept of intergenerational trauma is through Dr. Joy DeGruy and her research um, that um, developed into the theory of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Um, where she published uh, this finding that explains the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities, and I would say throughout the diaspora as well, where it is this condition that exists as a consequence of multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants as a result of chattel slavery. And a form of that slavery, which uh, was predicated on the belief that black people were inherently and genetically inferior to white people. How do you not pass that on systematically throughout the generation? And this was then followed by institutional racism, which is buttressed by this ideology and which continues to perpetuate that injury. And so she developed this MAP, M-A-P, which is multi-generational trauma together with continued oppression. The A is absence of opportunity to heal or access the benefits available in society. And this leads to P, which is post-traumatic slave syndrome. 
syndrome. And under such circumstances, there are some of these predictable pattern of behavior that tend to occur. What does your research tell you about this kind of generational trauma indicators? Well, my research tells me that while it is true that enslavement and continued racial oppression of black people has resulted in multi-generational trauma, but it has also resulted in multi-generational resilience. While it has resulted in vacant esteem and maladaptive coping mechanisms and learned helplessness, it has also resulted in individual and collective resistance, kinship care, informal networks of economy, social networks that's, that are supportive, that support the capacity to recover, to reclaim, to rename our own realities and identities. And I think one of the challenges that in Dr. Uh, Joy DeGruz's work, and she said, in the absence of opportunity to heal or access the benefits available in the society. And while that is true, we also know that black people are very, very adaptive in terms of pooling their resources, supporting one another. So it is not all black and white that we all only internalize racism. You can, inter and, and because resilience and trauma can coexist. And oftentimes we think about resilience as something that comes after trauma, but it coexists. And so if we think about framing resilience as the capacity to recover after trauma, you think of only the traumatic experiences that people have, but actually both simultaneously exist. So an example of that, that I was talking about in living with my grandparents during the summer, there were things, I lived in a, in a black neighborhood, you know, and so that meant that my relationship and the way I witnessed the police coming up into our communities in a very violent way, more often than not. But I also learned how to deal with that. I also learned healthy ways of dealing with that. So I talked about earlier being in elementary school and not learning a damn thing about the, the history of black people in school, nothing to be proud of. But I had people surrounding me who told me about black people who told me about our history. At the same time, I went to black churches. I saw black lawyers and teachers in the neighborhoods that my grandparents lived in during the summer. So I had these, to use one of the tenets of critical race theory, I had tons of counter narratives, counter narratives in my lived experiences. They don't buffer you completely. And so I still have a lot of things that I have to unlearn, internalized racism that I have to continually unlearn. But there were always buffers and there were always counter narratives such that it is just important to really continue to think in terms of intergenerational trauma and resilience. And I think it's also one of the things we do in social work because no matter how devastating or how problematic a situation might look, we always ask the question, in the midst of this chaos, what is working? What are the strengths? What can we pull on? What can we draw on to help us in addressing some of those things like learned helplessness, that mm -hmm. vacant esteem? That's what my research has taught me. And it's also one of the reasons why we use a multicultural uh, life course lens, because some of the issues that Joy DeGru is talking about, they are systemic issues. Mm -hmm. And in social work, when we use an MSLC perspective, Sometimes the intervention will be in the environment. 
changing the environment, not necessarily focusing exclusively on changing the person, changing the environment. So if you are intervening at an environmental level and addressing systemic racism, you know, if you are advocating for social justice, you can change the environment so that the next generation of people are not growing up with that vacant esteem, with internalized racism, you know, with believing that they they have no value, you know, that they're three fifths of a human being, you know, all of those things. And so, and I and I think that that's one of the things that I, and distinguishing some of the social work practices from like, for example, psychology, psychology oftentimes will focus exclusively on the individual. Right. Change the individual, change the individual, change the individual. Yeah. But sometimes we need to change the environment. And some of the paranoia that we walk around with, it's legitimate. There's a reason why we do. And, and it's healthy. You know, it's, yep. it's part of protective. surviving. It's yeah. protective. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to pay attention to uh, understanding when you need to intervene at a, uh, a a macro level, a societal level, a community level, and an individual level. And that's what we call this integrated practice because some of all of it can be the best mix in terms of the, the change process. For a very long time, you know, I consider myself to be very thrifty and resourceful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know how we do in black households? Uh, these uh, candy pans turn into <laughs> sewing kits. Yes, yes. <laughs> and all these, you know, water containers turn in, you know, for drinks and all that. So I do that. Like, yeah. you know, I'm a low-key hoarder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I thought I was just being resourceful. Mm-hmm. I'm like... This is smart. Mm-hmm. Why would I go buy it at the store? Yeah. I didn't know that was probably because I was poor that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. And that is something that has been passed on to me. Yeah. Maybe generationally as a way to like save money. Yeah. I just thought I was smart. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Some of the ways in which we cook are, you know, because we only had certain parts of the meat, of the meat yeah. you know, the cow, so to speak, <laughs> to... <laughs> and uh, and it was passed on generationally, yeah. uh, bec- out of poverty, out of survival. And you know, I, I had a conversation recently at one of my poker games. One of the um, women that we play that I play poker with was going to was talking about bringing chitlins to the <laughs> <laughs> to the poker game, and. I'm like, absolutely no, not. No, we don't. We don't have to eat chitlins no more. And she's like, well, my ancestors ate chitlins. Like, good for you. That works for you. But no, we had to make the chitlins work at one point. We don't now. We so have a choice. We have some choices now. So we, you cannot bring chitlins to my poker game. Girl, let's go to Boca. <laughs> yes. yes. All right, that's a good note to end on. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh my, this was what? really great. This was, oh my god, my chest feel all heavy. <laughs> Why do you always do that to me? You're too profound. You keep asking the questions. <laughs> Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.